Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. If you are just tuning in for the first time, welcome. This is a podcast about our relationships with our bodies. Today, I got to interview someone who is so, so cool. Her name is Emily Joy, and I met her kind of like two years ago at a birthday party, We've run in the same circles since then, and it was so cool to actually get to sit down and listen to her story and get to ask her questions and learn about why she does what she does. Emily is the author of the Hashtag Church 2 book, which you can pre-order now in all the links below, and it will be out and available for the public in 2021, which I am super stoked about. This was a very fun interview for me. We talked about purity culture, rape culture, abuse in the church, what grooming is, different types of trauma. We talked about sexuality, coming out, what that's like and how that really is a big win when it comes to just listening to your body. I don't think I've thought about that as deeply as I did as when... Emily shared her story on this interview, just on how that really is choosing yourself. And Emily said something really powerful in the middle of the interview about never being willing to not choose herself again. And and I think that should be all of our mottos because that is badass. So I really hope you enjoy. And yeah, I will see you soon. If you guys are enjoying listening to the Unity Project podcast and you want to support me as a podcaster, a writer, any of the things, if you want to become a part of the Unity Project podcast, then go to patreon.com slash JackieGTV. That is where you can support me for as little as $1 a month. That will help me make this podcast everything that I dream for it to be and write the books that I dream to write and... All the things, you guys. If you want to support me, go ahead and do that. Or if you want to read my story and find out how I got from there to here and any and all the things, you can read my book, Finding Home. You can pick up a copy of that at my website, www.jackiegronland.com. Or if you want to support me but you cannot afford to financially, then leaving a review for this podcast is incredibly helpful. Anywhere that you listen to podcasts, just go down there. You don't have to say much. Just however you feel about it, let me know. That helps a lot more than I think a lot of people realize. So, yeah, enjoy. Emily Joy, how are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. I'm super, super excited to talk to you because as we were just chatting about before, I feel like I know you, but I don't know you. Like we've never like really, really talked, talked, but we run Mm -hmm. in like very similar circles. Well, and Nashville Nashville is just like that. There's so many people in Nashville like that where it's like, we are at all the same things, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But I've heard pieces of your story throughout mutual friends on the internet and I am really excited that you wanted to talk more about it on my podcast because I think there are some hugely important things that you have to say. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, where are you from, Emily? Uh, So originally I am from Illinois, but I've lived in Nashville um, in January. It'll be seven years. Uh, So I've been here a while, but I originally grew up in Illinois and um, Central Illinois, and then went to school in Chicago. So I spent most of my life up until adulthood in Illinois. Okay, I got you. And now you live here with Caitlin. You guys have not gotten married yet? We you- are engaged to You're be engaged. married. Um, and <laughs> okay. we also live with um, our friend Aaron, and all three of us are um, students at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Okay, that is Amazing. I remember going, I think it was your birthday during like the Queer Christian Conference a couple years ago. Was that yours or was it Caitlin's birthday? It was Caitlin's that, birthday, yeah, in January. Okay. I think that might have been the last time I've ever I've seen you. Yeah, it's been that a while was, and that was not even not even here. <laughs> yeah, not even here. My goodness. Well, Emily, I want to ask to start off the podcast uh, to describe the relationship that you have with your body. I think... That is a lovely question. Um, and I think about this a lot. Uh, and I know that a lot of times that we um, talk about like our goals to like love our body. 
right? So many people are like, I love my body or I want to love my body. Um, I would like to get there. I think for me, um, an edge of growth has not been pressuring myself to feel this love towards my body. I, I don't know that I would say that I love my body, even now, even after all of the work that I've done, even after all of, you know, the therapy and the unlearning, I don't know that I necessarily love my body, but I think where I'm at with my body right now is that, um, I trust it Mm. and I know it and I feel like I can rely on it. Uh, and to me that has been, that's been good enough for now. Um, I, I'm still hoping one day to get to that place where I love my body, but right now I feel like I trust it and that is good. Okay. That's awesome. That's a very honest, real answer. And I appreciate that. Um, what has that kind of looked like for you? Like the journey of learning to trust your body? Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the uh, exact breakdown in terms of religious background is of your audience, but, um, for me, you know, I very much grew up in this, um, fundamentalist evangelical background where the body was, I mean, neutral at best, and and at worst, it was a source of evil, a source of sin. You were supposed to beat your body and make it your slave. And really, the idea was just that, like, the body is a never-ending source of lies and temptation. And you really can't listen to anything that body has to say at all. Um, so for me, being able to come from that to being able to trust my body is a huge, um, that's just a huge leap. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a huge edge of growth. And so... So that's kind of that's kind of been the journey that I've been on, um, learning to see my body not as uh, this endless source of temptation and sin and evil, uh, but as actually like a really important source of information and a really important source of um, data, right? Because it's not, mm-hmm. you know, all of our bodies, none of our bodies are perfect and we are all traumatized. And so it's not that like, every single impulse that we get from our body is always going to be a hundred percent right. That's not what it is to me. Um, it's more just learning to understand that like the impulses that I get from my body is data and it matters. It is important what my body's saying. So it deserves to be considered. Um, and so, yeah. So for me, that's kind of been the journey moving from, I don't know if it's point A to, you know, point B, but maybe it's a to a and a half. Um, (laughs) that's, that's where we're at. Yeah, that's a great way of explaining it. What do you mean by impulses being data? Like, what do you mean by that? Okay, so, right, um, if I'm sad, maybe my body sends me a message like, you should take 10 tequila shots right now, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, maybe my body sends me a message of like, you should hook up with that person who's like really terrible for your mental health and treats you like crap because you used to thrive on chaos and like, you know, that sort of thing. Like not yeah. everything <laughs> that the body says is correct all the time. <laughs> um, but it's data. It's important. You, you get that information back from the body. It's sort of like, um, how bats will use echolocation because bats can't see in the dark, right? But they send out these sound waves and it's what bounces back off the walls and off the buildings and off of, you know, caverns and that sort of thing that allows them to navigate at night. Um, Mm. And that's kind of what I feel like it is with my body. It feels like echolocation. It's like, I'm just going to see what bounces back and then we'll make a decision, you know, based off that, based off, you know, my values, based on, my conversations with people I trust and am accountable to, but that, that bounce back is still very important. Um, and I feel like a lot of times people think, uh, that bounce back is not important at all. And that's not true. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I heard this thing, I forgot who wrote it, but something about, um, being able to, or like the journey of being able to trust yourself and what your body wants and like those wants saying something bigger and then someone responding back being like, but what if those wants are like just getting really drunk every night? And then in response to that, the lady was like, well, then look underneath that. Like, what is the actual want of that? Like, are you lonely? Are you mm-hmm. sad? Yeah, that's that's yeah. really important. I, I've heard a lot about that recently with like our bodies being our best source of information and like extremely wise when we listen to them, which takes so much unlearning to listen to them when like growing up in these different backgrounds, especially, I mean, from my experience, it sounds like yours, church world and stuff like that. But yeah, take me back to, you were saying how uh, you, the way your bodies were talked about 
what did you call it? Like a vehicle or source of like just like an endless desire. source of temptation, an endless source of like sin and evil. Yeah. Yeah. What was that experience like? Like when how? Or I guess my first question would be, how old were you when that started to be the way you learned that the world worked? I mean, it's hard to even say, like, how old are you when it's something that you're, like, raised with as a tiny child. Um, I just keep thinking about, um, in in the Bible, there's this bit, I think it's in Jeremiah, um, where it says, like, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And it felt like, it felt like my parents and my church community um, and the communities that were most formative to me, like as a young person, really took that verse like super literally as as sort of their guiding <laughs> um, metaphor for how to think about the body. Uh, just this idea that like, um, you know, the heart and the body cannot possibly be used as a compass. Mm-hmm. Um and this, this applied to a lot of things, right? I mean, obviously, we're probably going to talk a lot in this conversation about sex and stuff, but there's so many, like, there's so many non-sexual things that this applied to also. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of, like, the matter of of hell, for example, right? Because, uh, you know, that, that's sort of a revolting idea. And so our hearts and our bodies go, oh, that's not right, right? It's not right that you would burn alive forever um, yeah. after, you know, the supposedly loving God said that they loved you. Um, and so the, the sort of fundamentalist evangelical answer to that from where I come from is like, oh, well, you're just, you know, you're a finite human. You just can't understand your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God's ways are higher than our ways. Right. Mm. And so, so you just have to trust that like this, this very abhorrent evil thing is somehow good. Um, and, and so that bleeds over into a lot of other things too. Right. So now we can get into kind of the sexual aspects of that, but I think like, you know, I was very much raised in um, what we would call purity culture, which uh, my, so my elevator, my elevator pitch definition of purity culture, I've been working on this for a long time, and I wrote a whole book about it. uh, And I still don't really have like a concise (laughs) way of saying it. But I'm trying really hard. My elevator pitch definition right now is that purity culture um, is the culture created by the theologies that teach that the only correct avenue for sexual expression is uh, one cisgender heterosexual man and one cisgender heterosexual woman in a legal monogamous marriage for life or else right Mm -hmm. and what your what the or else is is gonna your your mileage on that is gonna vary right depends on the community so like you know one community might say or else no one's gonna want you uh, or else your sex life with your future spouse is going to be horrible or else um, you'll get an STI and get pregnant and die or else (laughs) you're going to burn in hell forever. Right. But there's always like a carrot on the end of the stick metaphorically. And so, so I very much grew up in that. And, and the idea was like, Oh, you, you know, as you grow up, uh, as you become an adolescent and a teenager, you might want to, you know, have physical interactions with another person, but that's just your body leading you astray. That's just your body um, telling you to do something that God doesn't want you to do. And the real, the real test of holiness here is if you can cram your body down into a suitcase and sit on it and zip it shut. And then if you do that, you're holy, you're righteous, oh, you're wow. pure. Wow. What message did you interpret that as saying that like, what characteristics would you say you would have felt like God was because of that? You know, I don't know. I think you kind of, for me, I don't know. I can't speak for everybody that grew up um, in that context. But for me, I sort of just uh, dichotomized God in that way, right? In, mm-hmm. in my mind, I would have said like, oh, God is loving. Now, do I feel like that? No. I, In fact, um, not too long ago, I was reading through a bunch of my old journals as I was writing this book that I just wrote um, to to just kind of like get a sense of where I was at (laughs) those days. I was like, I wanted to get back into my head at that time. Um, And so I was reading a bunch of these old journals and I couldn't get over how much I felt like, um, like there were so many entries where I was like, I just feel so far from God, Mm. you know? And it wasn't, and I blamed it on myself but that was, 
that was the vibe. That was where I was at. I just, I, for some reason, my adolescent self felt so far from God, even though in my head I would have said like, God's very loving. And, and so, so in my journals, you know, I sort of blame it on myself, like, because God is so loving, this must be my fault. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think I had just kind of parsed God out in that way. Like I still would have said he was loving, but I didn't really feel it. Yeah. And I blame that lot- on myself. That makes a lot of sense because whenever you do feel that like distance from God or whatnot, like I remember always feeling and kind of being told that like it's always my fault because God is perfect and how they communicate God is perfect. Whatever church you're going to has like the voice of God. And so if you feel off, it's something that you must be doing wrong. And so it's just kind of this constant like you're the bad guy in every scenario. Yeah. No, it's absolutely it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it it just oh my goodness, it plays such a harsh toll, harsh toll on you when you're growing up and your mind's developing and just just the idea I don't know, it's so interesting to me cuz I feel so distanced now from my experience in evangelical world and yeah. I'm just like <laughs> remembering really, really feeling, feeling like, like the bad guy and, and going to therapy now like a lot of my a lot of my like narrative that I'm working through unbelieving is that like you're evil and you're bad, like at the end of everything. And my therapist recently was like, I have a really, really, really strong feeling that this is tied to all the religious trauma stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, you're right. And we started looking at like <laughs> what that would have looked like and how very black and white and very like you have to be the bad guy in the scenario. I don't know. What what was that like for you growing up? Like what did um I know you have a story about a youth a youth pastor or something. Um what 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 did that look like for you as yeah. young Emily? Um so this is part of what I just uh wrote my book about and I you know I've talked about this um at length ad nauseum <laughs> in a lot of uh various outlets. So um if people are interested they can um do a little googling. Um, but essentially what happened was when I was 16, I was groomed for, uh, I was abusively groomed for a romantic relationship, uh, by a youth leader. He wasn't a pastor, but he was like a well-respected leader in the youth group who was in his thirties. Um, and when the whole thing was sort of found out, um, instead of the adults in the situation realizing like, oh, this is this guy who is a predator who turned out to be a serial predator, by the way. Um, But, you know, the adults in the situation didn't go, oh, this is a guy who is a predator who is preying on a 16-year-old. It was more like, oh, this is like a co-equal between the two of them, like perpetration of evil and sin. Mm -hmm. And so, like, he was wrong, but, like, I was also wrong, right? So so I was made to apologize. I was punished. I was, you know, grounded even, like, these sort of things, right? Um, And so... That was probably, I mean, that was obviously one of the the more traumatic things that I've gone through um, in my life. But I think especially, you know, as as a young person who was, um, you know, I was I was so zealous for the God of evangelical Christianity. I think, and I, and I say I, in my book, I describe myself like I think because I was so zealous, I was just chum in the water for abuse. You know what I'm saying? Like I really wanted to please God. That's all I wanted to do. That's the thing I wanted to do most was please God. And so my abuser preyed on me by telling me that like our relationship would be pleasing to God because he mm. knew that that is the thing that I wanted most in the world. And it was so fascinating um, you know, now looking back at what, at what went on, I was, I'm just like, dang, like it didn't have to be that way. Yeah. But, but I think the adults in the situation were, I don't think they were acting, um, like out of turn with their theology, if that makes sense. I think the adults <laughs> in the situation were acting absolutely in incoherence with their theology. Their theology told them to treat me like that. Their theology told them that I was a Jezebel. Their theology told them that it was at least partially my fault. And so that they were acting in line with their theology. Um, And so now as an adult, I look back and I go, okay, we got to talk about this theology then. Yeah. You know? Um, And so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at. And that's, that's the work that I do now. Um, but I, I guess all of that is to say that I come to the work, you know, not as an outsider. <laughs> I come to the work 
very much as a person who has this like deep personal experience with that. And, and yeah, I think, you know, going back to the body question, like that experience absolutely made me, um, question my relationship with my body because, you know, I felt like, I was manipulated, right? So I felt like I felt like this relationship was like good and holy. Um and and then it turned out that I was like super wrong. Uh and so it just made me feel like God can like can anything that my heart or my body tells me be trusted? Mm. You know, and that was kind of the question that I took with me into, you know, my later adolescence and into adulthood because of that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I don't know what uh, exactly like the background you came from, but a lot of the stuff they would say at my church um, is very, very charismatic. And so they would say how like the voice in your head is one of three things, your voice, God's voice, or the enemy's voice. So you never know which one it is. And it's (laughs) like, oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about that. And it's just this, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And um, when you talk about grooming, I don't know, I don't know if that, I don't know if that's like a super common word we've used on here before, which I would love to talk more about because I have a similar story when it comes to that. But would you kind of describe what you mean by grooming? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is not a, a metaphor that is unique to me. Um, lots of people have used this metaphor before. Um, oh. If you Google this, you'll probably find a lot of sermon illustrations actually oh um, using this metaphor. But to me, when I when I think about grooming, uh, what I used to describe it is uh, this idea that like um, they say that you can boil a frog uh, in in a pot of water as long as you turn the temperature up just a little bit at a time. Mm. right um so like if you threw a frog into a hot pot of water this is sad because i'm a vegetarian i'm like no animal cruelty but like (laughs) but but if you threw if you threw a frog into a pot of boiling water it would like jump out right it'd freak out but if you put a frog in a pot of lukewarm water and just turn it up one one degree at a time now i don't know if this is true i I, maybe there's a a veterinarian or someone listening to this can verify (laughs) let me know (laughs) this this long-held uh urban myth but um, but this is the the story that I always heard growing up, and that's that's what I think of when I think of grooming, right? It's just mm. turning the, de- the the temperature up one degree at a time until um, you don't even know. And you know, there's there's more um, there's other more official definitions. Like if you take, I've I've taken a few different like abuse prevention um, training programs for various like school and employment things, and Ooh. they'll talk about how grooming is basically just like this process of breaking rules. But it's like, it starts with like a little rule, right? And then, and then it gets to like a bigger rule and a bigger rule until all of a sudden, like you're totally acclimated to behavior that is deeply not okay. Yeah. But you have no idea it's not okay because the temperature has been turned up so um, slowly and so incrementally that it doesn't even occur, right? And that's why, that's how abusers are able to kind of fly under the radar um, because nobody pays attention if it's just a little bit at a time. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and kind of in a way, it like, it's like a journey of the abuser trying to make you trust them. Yeah, absolutely. Like it is building this relationship that like, they are good, and they can do no wrong. And you said something in another podcast that I was listening to about this story um, about like, having a hard time seeing that like, this could be wrong, because if this man was wrong, then what does that mean about like wrongness and evil in the world if he's like someone that you trusted? Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that felt like? I mean, I think it's both. I I think uh, both with my abuser and also with my parents, I think there was this, you sort of have to, as a, as an, as a victim, as a survivor, um, you sort of have to create, you, ha- you have to have this cognitive dissonance, right? So So you have to create this narrative of like, these people that I trust, that I look up to, that are supposed to be looking out for me, they can't possibly be doing the wrong thing right now, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, surely there must be an explanation for it. Um, and and so I, I think it's both. Like, for with my abuser, I created this narrative that, like, surely he must actually be in love with me, right? Because why else would 
this man that I trust that I know to be, you know, supposedly this man of God, why else would he be doing this thing? Why else would he be behaving like this? It can't possibly be because he's a bad person, right? Can't possibly be because he's an abuser. With my parents, it was like, okay, I have to believe that I'm wrong, that I deserve to be punished, that I have to, you know, say I'm sorry. Uh, because otherwise, these people that are supposed to be looking out for me, these people that are supposed to be taking care of me, these people that are supposed to be nurturing me, my family, my parents, otherwise, they're like bad people doing the wrong thing. And you can't, as, as a child, it's really hard to come to terms with that. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's really hard to come to terms with the fact as a child that like, the people that are supposed to be caring for you and looking out for you are failing, yeah. Um, and so you create these narratives around it of, well, I'm the problem, right? Like it surely it's gotta be my fault. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. What was your parents' role in all this? Like I, I know you mentioned being grounded. Like what did that look like with them when they found out? When they found out, yeah, it was very much just like they punished me, they grounded me, um, they made me call him and apologize. Oh my God. Yeah, I had to call oh, no. him on the phone and apologize that night. And it was very much like, I, I describe it more in detail um, in my book, but it was very much what I would call like a tag team decimation. Like the conversation that we had was not a conversation. It was them talking at me and me having a series of panic attacks. Um, and, and of course, at that point, like I had not ever seen a therapist. I'd never been diagnosed. I didn't know any of my mental health stuff. Um, so at that point, I'm just like riding this roller coaster without knowing what's going on in, in my head and my heart and my body. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think my parents absolutely, you know, totally failed. Um, and so did every other adult, every other adult in that entire situation. Um, you know, it wasn't just my parents. It was every single adult that should have known better just failed me spectacularly. And they failed me in line with their theology. It was not in spite of their theology. It was okay. because of their theology. Wow, that's such a big statement because it makes so much sense. And I've never heard someone say it in that way, but it's like the people are doing it because of their theology, like it was in line. That's so interesting to me. How did how did you feel about or did you like understand that was a theological thing at the time? Or did that kind of take time to to get. Oh, that absolutely took time. No, at the time I very much was like, um, I was going right along with it. Like, yes, it's my fault. I'm bad. I deserve to be punished, blah, blah, blah. Oh. Um, you know, and I, I did, so I didn't speak to an actual therapist until after I moved out of my parents' house. I was in college in my, oh, I don't know, junior or senior year. I think it was my junior year. Um, before I, before I spoke to an actual therapist at okay, that point, cool. a therapist told me, are you sure that you haven't been? Cause, um, in spite of all the abusive, you know, relational dynamics that had gone on, I had not been raped. And so I'm, I've talked to a therapist about this and the therapist was like, are you sure that you have not been raped? Because you're saying all of the same things that a person who has been raped says about themselves and their body. Um, you're, you're, you're presenting all of the same like sexualized trauma basically. Um, and so I was like, no, I'm sure, but also that's really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And so so I tucked that in my back pocket. Um, but yeah, it, so it was partially that. It was partially just, you know, uh, growing up and getting some actual sex education and like learning about consent, for example, and like understanding that like actually consent is impossible between a 16-year-old child with no sex education and a man in his thirties who's supposed to be like a spiritual authority figure at church, right? Mm. Like that's just not possible. So I learned about consent. I talked to a therapist, you know, I just kind of got out of my small town and like, um, talked to people who grew up differently than me and started to expand my viewpoints about things. And it was kind of o over that, um, process of, talking to people who were outside of the situation that I, that I started to realize like, Oh, actually like what happened to me was like really messed up. Mm. Um, but it took me, it took me a lot of years to yeah. unpack that. And between the time that it happened and the time that I came forward, uh, was, was 10 full years. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There's so many layers to that kind of thing. And it's just such a complicated, like, I don't know. My my therapist talks a lot about the difference between 
simple trauma, which is like a one-time event that happened, and complex trauma, which is like kind of how I feel. Would, would you just – have you heard those terms before, I'm assuming? Um, when I talk about it, I say chronic and acute. Okay. Um, Tell, right? What's the difference to you So to me, uh, acute is like the, the, the tornado that happened in Nashville. My house got destroyed by that tornado while we were inside of it, Okay. We're huddled in the bathroom, the tornado blows through, trees on the roof, like the whole house shakes, all of that. That's an acute trauma, right? Mm -hmm. It happened once, and it's over, and it sucked, it was horrible, but but it's over, right? I know that more likely than not, that's not going to happen again, Um, but... So so to me, the, the tornado is an example of like an acute trauma, whereas chronic trauma is this... Like, like purity culture is a chronic trauma to me, right? Mm. This growing up in this context where every other day you were getting everything about your body and your mind judged and um, undermined and told that it was evil and bad and sinful. And then uh, you go to church and they have the altar call and they say, you're going to hell if you don't come forward. And you're like, oh, thinking about all of the burning and uh, <laughs> in your mind. And so you're like, oh God, I better come forward. And this, this, just kind of low-level constant trauma, mm-hmm. these chronic experiences. So that's that, that's to me the difference, right? Um, both of them are trauma. <laughs> yeah. So when I talk about it, I use acute and, and chronic. Um, and I think it's interesting. You know, I would say that what happened with my abuser was, a, was an acute trauma, right? Because it happened and then it didn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Um and it was it was it was horrible, but it stopped at a certain point. But I would say the acute trauma of what happened with my abuse happened over the background of the chronic trauma of purity culture. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes so much sense. I know you've talked about before purity culture kind of instigating rape culture in a sense. How would you say those two correlate? I think purity culture is just the the um, spiritual and in, in in this context specifically Christian um, corollary of mm. rape culture. Okay, um, it's the thing that says there's only one right way to be a woman, and uh, if you fail, you're either undesirable or a slut, and you deserve what you get. Okay, um, and so so yeah, to me so those are just the same purity, thing. Yeah, purity culture and and rape culture. Um, you know, if I'm talking to an, uh, an atheist or to someone that didn't grow up in Christianity, I say rape culture. And if I'm talking to a Christian, I say purity culture. But I mean, essentially, give or take the same thing. Wow. That's super interesting. I've never heard it described that way, but it makes so much sense because the way, because purity culture is just kind of like, not the nice way of putting it, but like the wrapping it around this other thing, making an excuse for it type of thing. Yeah, I think the thing about purity culture that's different from rape culture is just that like purity culture has a whole Bible to justify it, mm. right? Like rape culture um, doesn't necessarily have that. And in fact, that's why I explained, so the, the book that I wrote um, is called Church 2, and hashtag Church 2, and it's um, based on the hashtag that was started when I came forward um, with my story of abuse that has now... Um, you know, spread so so much further beyond me, um, which I think is amazing. But um, the way that I describe it in there, this is sort of church to me to purity culture, rape culture. Um, maybe one of the differences between these things, like for example, um, Harvey Weinstein does terrible stuff, right? But you don't see anybody justifying the things that Harvey Weinstein did with a chapter in the verse from the Bible, right? You don't see anybody being like, well, we should let Harvey Weinstein off the hook because, like, King David was an abuser, too. (laughs) However, that does happen with pastors, right? Mm -hmm. Pastors all the time have their abusive behavior justified based on the Bible. And you need to forgive, and Jesus says this, that, and the other, right? So. So that's why I think some of these conversations, while they are um, analogous, are also somewhat separate because we do have to deal with the fact that, like, in a Christian context, we do have this uniquely traumatizing aspect of religious trauma on top of this, right? Because it's one thing to be abused, right? It's one thing to experience something abusive. It's another thing for the whole community to go, that's actually fine because of XYZ verse in the Bible and this is how God wants it. Mm. right it's it's yeah. an added layer of spiritual trauma on top of the existing like 
sexual trauma and emotional trauma um, of these types of experiences. And so, so yeah. So I think the specificity of the terminology is important, um, but they it is analogous to church too is analogous to me too. Um, purity culture is analogous to rape culture. Okay. That's so scary. Cause it's kind of like, I'm like, if, if I were on that standpoint, I'd be like, I'm right, you're wrong. And God's on my side. So you have no budging. That's terrifying. Oh my goodness. Was it like, how did you feel coming out of that kind of when you started going to therapy and learning kind of like the other perspectives of it and learning that it was wrong and learning that it was abuse and that the theology that the grown-ups and your parents were using harmed you like what was that experience like was it like a grieving process or um it it was a grieving process i think um more than anything i just got really angry mm-hmm. um but to me anger is anger is fuel Um, right. Anger is a compass. Mm -hmm. Anger just lets you know how you feel about stuff. So for me, when I got really angry, I was like, I should do something about this. (laughs) Like I should take this and, and, um, try to help not just myself with it, you know, not just work through my own issues, but also help other people. Um, and so that's kind of always what I've sought to do. And even, even, even before the launch of church too, um, you know, I've been, I've been writing and speaking and organizing at the intersection of faith and gender and sexuality for a lot of years. Um, And a lot of that was because I was just trying to like take this anger that I had inside of me at my experience and use it, um, use it in a redemptive way, use it to help myself. You know, I'm going to dig myself out of the pit and then I'm going to turn around and grab other people by the hand and pull them up too. Mm. I love that. Random curiosity question. What's your Enneagram number? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm a hard five. <laughs> hard five. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, I have a pretty strong six wing. The anxiety is real. Um, okay. But yeah. <laughs> I love it. My best friend's a five turner. Yeah. So I, I feel like I know when I'm talking to a five. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I love this. I feel like I always learn so much. Um, that's awesome. I love the, the metaphor used of digging yourself out of the pit and pulling others out with you. That's really cool. What, what kind of... I guess what brought you from there to like the church to movement? Like how did it feel or how, how many years went by between first going to therapy and realizing you were angry about the abuse and then starting to speak and write and just be an advocate for it? Yeah. Okay. So the timeline of that was, um, I went to college at 18. Um, I moved out of my small town and, um, went to college at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which some people might know about. Um, oh, I've definitely heard yeah, of that. It's, uh, been in the news lately. Um, Oof. but, uh, but yeah, so that's where I was. And, and so I first talked to a therapist there, but it wasn't like my therapist, you know what I'm saying? It was just a professor who was also a therapist who would like have office hours sometimes. And so, mm. um, so I had a couple of sessions with her and, Um, that's when I first, someone was like, oh, are you sure that you haven't been like abused? And I was like, well, I, I think I might've been abused. Just not like, not like that, but yeah, yeah. Like this is, this is abuse. A lot of this is abuse. Um, and so, but that was when I was in college and then I didn't see like an actual, like this was my therapist who I was contracted with in like a, in a therapeutic relationship, um, until I was 20, God, when did I get married? Um, I was married to a man for four years. I, it was the, it was like the, the fall. No, it was, I got married in 2015. This would have been a year and a half after I got married. So it was like the fall of 2016. So I was mm. 25. I did not, I did not like step into a therapist's office uh, for like a, a long, a long relationship with a therapist until uh, I was 25. Um okay. But it was quick after that. Um, it was about a year of therapy until I finally came forward. Uh, and a lot of stuff happened in that year. I mean, my family had kind of disowned me at that point um, on account of a lot of this, like, anti-purity culture stuff. Uh, and so, like, I had finally got the courage at that point to, like, be okay with that and then... Um, you know, work through a bunch of other stuff. I was coming out at the same time. So that was, I was married, but I was coming out and I was in the process of that. And then about a year later, uh, 
in the fall of 2017. And actually, uh, we are recording this podcast uh, today on the 16th of October, which I believe today is actually the three-year anniversary of um, the Me Too movement going viral on oh, damn. Twitter. Um, and of course, you know, the Me Too movement as started by Toronto Burke had been around for like a decade at that point, but that was when it, it you know, first went viral on Twitter was three years ago. Cheers to that. Um, yeah. So I had been in, in therapy uh, about a year at that point. Okay. Um, and at that point I was like, I think, you know, like, I think I want to come forward about all of this now. Like now feels like the time. And I was very, um, I was very inspired by everybody that was coming forward by all of the brave people who were participating in the Me Too movement and sharing their stories. And I was like, I, this is, I, I, I think now my, you know, the time is ripe. And mm. so, so I did it. Wow. But that was, that was, like I said, 10 full years, um, in 2017. Yeah, I was 26 and it, and the abuse happened when I was 16. So it was 10 full years, um, until I came forward publicly. Okay. That is such a journey. What you mentioned a second ago coming out while you were married to a man. What was that might be like a detour of a conversation. <laughs> no, <laughs> totally. Feel free to detour. take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, which we are gonna go back to the original conversation, but I can't imagine that. That'd be I mean, what was that like? Um, that was really hard. Um, it was really hard. It's hard to, uh, be with someone that you love and realize like, I need to not be married to you anymore. Um, for, for my sake and for yours. Um, but that was, that was a a process in therapy, you know, like I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm such a huge advocate of therapy because of how much it has helped me sort through really complicated and sticky, um, situations like that. But I think that was really, so if you want to, I mean, this is a detour, sure. But if you want to talk about bodies and about listening to our bodies, let's talk about how I didn't even have a hint that I was not straight until I was 25. Oh, wow. Um, Tell me about that. This was not a situation where my entire life I was hiding it, right? I wasn't like as a child thinking like, oh my God, I have a crush on my best friend who's a girl and I just better hide this because God's going to be mad and my family's going to be mad. Not a clue. Not even a little bit. Um, and I, in, in some ways, I've always been um, somewhat jealous of the people who who have, like, the born this way narrative, uh, you know, because that seems, <laughs> it seems a little bit more clear cut to me. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, d- I dated men um, my whole life, and I married a man. Uh, and then about a year after we were married, uh, now I will say, I mean... Uh, because of purity culture, I had not um, had a lot of sexual experience. Um, and so I think after about a year, you know, year and a half of sexual experience, that was when I first came out. I was like, oh, actually, <laughs> I am not straight. Yeah. Um, but it, it was another, it was a couple of years more journey after that to coming out like, oh, actually, I'm gay. I need to not be married. That was a whole other, that was a whole other journey. Um, but I, I, I think constantly about how, like, like I'm always looking back. My friend, um, I don't know if you follow uh, Antonia Terrasas on um, on Twitter, but Antonia calls it um, queer archaeology. Oh, wow. <laughs> when when we go back and try to like find those like queer moments, you know. And I, <laughs> so I do queer archaeology on myself all the time, and I'm like, maybe like maybe this, maybe that. And there's some things, you know what I'm saying? Like that. The the first thing I did once I um, got a driver's license was I drove myself to the hair salon and, and got a short haircut. Um, <laughs> cause I was like, that's exactly what I want to do right now. You know? So, um, so there's some things, there's some things, but by and large, I, you know, I don't find a lot of that. And so when people ask me like about my sexuality and my journey to coming out, I've always been like, um, you know, it wasn't so much that I was that I was like actively hiding anything or repressing anything about myself. It was more that I felt that the connection between my brain and my heart and my body had been severed long before I ever had my first boyfriend. You know, mm-hmm. like it it was this it was this feeling of like it would never even have occurred to me to date a woman or to have a crush on a woman. Um, not because, uh, you know, that wasn't possible, but because like 
what I desired or wanted was so, I never even asked myself that question. That was not a thing that I considered. Wow. And so, so when I came out, it was like really a shock, I think, um, to myself, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, and then also to the, to the, to the people who had been close to me too, because, um, you know, at, at times I had made jokes about like, oh, I think I'm the straightest person that I know. And I, it was really just, I'm the most repressed person that I know. Um, wow. but, but it took a long time for me to get to a place, you know, I had, I had to, I had to unlearn the homophobic theology that I was taught to. So like before I ever came out, I had done the work to um, become affirming, right? So like my friends who were gay, I was like, love you, will be the best lady at your wedding. Like we'll fight anybody that tells you that you're wrong. Like we will get in Facebook fights. Well, you know, like I was like number one ally. There you go, <laughs> gotta have it. Yeah, um, so I had done that work, but I just, I never had stopped to think like, if this is okay for other people, like maybe it's okay for me, you know? And it, it took, it took getting out of that and being out of it long enough to feel safe before I could even start considering those things. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. Especially how you talked about it with like years and years long before you had your first sexual encounter, you were repressed the whole entire time into like not know what you want and not know what you desire to even kind of have permission to think about it. Because from my experience in purity culture, like the whole time is just trying to not think about what I want sexually. You're trying to not have any sort of like sex in my mind at all. And so just the idea of having that opportunity I don't know that like that makes me feel emotional. Like what was what was that like when or was there like a specific moment that you realized, oh, this is not actually who, what I want? Or was it kind of something that developed a little bit over time? Uh, oh, no. Like, people are like, when did you know you were gay? I was like, mm, probably when I had sex with a woman for the first time. I'm, I'm a five. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, so it's like, I'm not going to come to that conclusion uh, theoretically. You know what I'm saying? Um but yeah, no, I mean, it was this mix of like, ugh, God, I'm just, I'm addicted to growth, mm. you know, like that's my most important value. And so, so for me, it was like, it was like, oh my God, I'm so excited to like learn all of this stuff about myself, but also like, oh my God, like now my whole life has to change, you know? Yeah. Um, and I kind of resisted that. I resisted it for a while. I was like, no, like there's got to be a way to like hold it together to make it work, but um, but no, I think now that I'm in a place where I have been able to, um, not just accept that about myself, but like love that about myself, I think my entire life has changed for the better. And so, you know, yeah, that, that may be a, a detour, but I do think it's really important if we're talking about bodies, um, because yeah, like I said, uh, learning, like accepting the fact that I was gay was a big part of me, like learning to trust my body, right? Mm. Like learning that like the things, the signals that my body was giving me were not wrong. They yeah. were not leading me astray. They were not evil. Um, they were just accurate <laughs> and it was yeah. okay to lean on them. It was okay to trust them, even if it meant scary stuff, even if it meant changing your whole life. Oh, wow. That's such a huge win. That's like you... Oh my goodness. That's just you like taking the side of yourself and deciding that you were worth being you and joy and yeah. love. And no, I don't, so I think huge. out of all of this, I have learned that I don't ever not take the side of myself ever again. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's super, super powerful. What, like, I'm sure that's probably a crazy journey story of realizing that so yeah then where you are now we don't have to get into that's all a, of that. that's a conversation over drinks sometime yeah let's have that let's have that another time for sure because I am unbelievably interested in your story my gosh okay so so then from that or church two stuff that happened after that right, or uh, right it was all kind that? of co it was all happening kind of at the same time so I had come out like as not straight before church two and then church two happened. And then, um, by, by the time church two had been happening for like a year, 
uh, was when, like, I had decided, like, or we had decided that, like, absolutely we're getting divorced. Um, so it, it was sort of all happening, like, concurrently. Um, and actually, so one interesting thing is, um, uh, in the book I interview my friend, um, Kenny, and, uh, at one point, not last, not this past summer, obviously, because we were all quarantined in our houses, but, um, last summer in 2019, um, I had gone to Arizona and visited some friends and I had parked my car at Kenny's house cause he lives in Memphis. Um, and I had flown out of Memphis. So when I got back from Arizona, I got my car at Kenny's house. Um, and we were going to go and like record a video, right? So me and Kenny, he's got his like camera or whatever. And we're going to go to the park and record a video about church Two stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kenny is a survivor himself, um, and has made, you know, media about all of this. And so, and so we're in the park and Kenny asked me, um, you know, like, what about, what about your personal life <laughs> in all of this? <laughs> like, yeah. like how has your actual life changed in all of this? And I said, you know, like, all of church too has kind of coincided with all of this very like difficult and painful personal growth for me. And I said to Kenny, like sometimes I feel like it doesn't have like anything to do with church too. And sometimes I feel like it has everything to do with church too. And then I was thinking about it and I stopped in the middle and I just, I have this, I've, I've seen this video of myself and I'm like calculating this in real time. And I was like, you know what? Actually, I think it has everything to do with church too. Because when you rip the scab off of one wound and you survive, and and not only do you survive, but like when I rip the scab off of my church too wound, not only did I survive, but I also like started this movement that Mm -hmm. like, is important to people and helps people and like changes the way that people are able to talk about their stories and their trauma and, and has made like an actual footprint in the world. When that happens, you sort of get fearless, Mm. right? Like this thing that I was so ashamed of for 10 years, I ripped the scab off and it changed not just my life, but like, hundreds of other people's lives, maybe thousands of other people's lives, you know, um, it just sort of makes you fearless. And so there was this moment where I was like, oh my God, like I can do anything. Wow. Like my life can be whatever I want it to be. And I can rip all of my scabs off and I will survive. Um, and so that, that to me is kind of what it's about. Like, Church 2 is this one thing that I did, but Church 2 has also, like, coincided with all of this other incredible growth in my life. And I don't think those two things are unrelated. Mm. Um, I think when you survive the unsurvivable, it makes you feel invincible. And it makes you feel like you can do anything. Wow. That makes so much sense to me. It's like it becomes addicting to a little bit, heal. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like growth and healing and just introspection. Like, yeah, it's so good and it feels so fulfilling and so just good. I love how you put that. And I'm just not afraid of anything. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the flip side, I've lost a lot. Yeah, I've lost so much in the last couple of years. But the flip side of having nothing left to lose is having nothing left to fear. Mm. That's good. That's really good. Emily, I am so inspired by your story. My goodness. That's just so special. It's just it feels like kind of like a love story with your with yourself, like coming back to yourself, realizing that, like, I don't know, like I love I love that when you figured out it was abusive, it made you mad because you should be mad about that kind of thing. Like it took me a while to get mad. My first reaction, oh, I can't even really remember the exact first reaction, but I feel like 
it was a lot of sadness and it took me a second to like feel justified to be mad because I felt like I wasn't allowed to be mad. But the second I got mad, it was like that was healing in itself. And it was kind of this like permission to permission to stand up for myself and permission to like see myself as valuable. And I don't know. So that's that's really cool. It's just damn. I think there's such a thing about that too. Like I would say like in, you know, hashtag society in general or whatever, but specifically in Christian culture also, and like Christian adjacent culture, there's this feeling that like women can't be mad. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You know? And it's like, anger is literally the only thing I run on. (laughs) So, you know, kick rocks. Kick rocks. There you go. (laughs) I'll tell them all to kick rocks. I second that, man. Emily, I have, I have like about two more questions for you. Uh, the first question is, what are things that you do today that you think help, help you feel connected with yourself and help kind of center you, ground you, help you feel connected to your body? Yes. Um, so, uh, I mean, I say this uh, recognizing that, like, not everybody is able to uh, participate in, like, physical activity, whether that's because of, like, time or, you know, bodily ability or, um, or any any number of reasons. But, um, but for me, a really crucial part of getting back with my body has been uh, both, I mean in a more, um, like in terms of a spiritual practice, it's been yoga. Um, but I also just do like a ton of like running and like cardio and like, I just ran four miles this morning. I'm trying to like run a 10 K this weekend. Like, um, I, and some of that is because I, this is a whole other issue. We could talk about bodies <laughs> and, you know, all of mental health and all of that on a, on a completely different, uh, interview, but I have bipolar, um, mm-hmm. And so for me, the the lots of working out is really helpful for managing that. Um, but yeah, I for me, getting back into my body in a physical way has been really important, especially because like when I was growing up, I definitely considered myself like, a, you know, I was more of like a creative. I'm like, I'm going to sit in the corner and write poetry in my notebook. I'm not going to play sports. I'm not going to like, <laughs> you know, that was not a sporty type of person. Um, and so always growing up, I, like I was, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of like physical exercise or anything like that. And I just, I was like, oh, that's just not my thing. Um, but now as an adult, I do all of this yoga and running and I'll do like hit cardio and I'm getting into like weightlifting in the quarantine and like That's all this awesome. type of stuff. Um, but it's so amazing because what I love about it, what helps me is understanding that like my body is actually like really good and really strong and my body can do awesome things. Right. Um, and also knowing that like if the fascist takeover comes to blows, like <laughs> I will be prepared. I will be ready yes. to throw a punch. You know what I'm saying? Oh my gosh. <laughs> but, I will get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, yeah, for me, just getting into my body and being physical, whether that's running or yoga um, or hit or weightlifting or whatever it is, has just been uh, an incredible balm to my soul. It has helped me to learn to like, like and trust my body because my body does all this cool stuff. And I'm like, wow, body, like that's cool. Um, and also I think that, um, even if, you know, if anybody's listening and you're like, man, I don't want to like do hot yoga. I don't want to run. That's cool. Like you could try like a medit like a meditation practice or something, just like sitting still, or even Mm -hmm. you can Google on YouTube, go and do chair yoga. There's so many like yoga practices that you could do literally sitting. But the thing of it is, it doesn't really so much to me matter what exactly it is that you're doing. It's more that you're doing something because what I have learned is this so many times people come out of fundamentalist evangelicalism you know religious trauma all this stuff and they change their mind theoretically about things they get better theology they get better beliefs whatever but it skips the body entirely so even though in their mind they've changed their mind about stuff they're still replicating trauma Mm -hmm. um, in their body and they still have not learned that actually um, incorporating your body is crucial to the healing process. Like the body cannot be ignored. The body has to be taken into consideration. And, um, I think that, uh, something I've learned is that the only people that will betray you are the people that regularly and consistently betray themselves, you know? Um, and so if you don't want to be the sort of person that betrays other people, you have to work on not betraying yourself. And a really easy way to start doing that is through physical stuff, right? So you're like, 
I'm gonna say that I'm gonna do a thing and then do it. I'm gonna say that I'm gonna run a mile and then I'm gonna run it. I'm gonna say that I'm gonna sit for five minutes and meditate and then I'm gonna do it. Like um, you just start keeping promises to yourself. Mm. And so for me, physical activity has been a really good way to keep promises to myself, to set goals and to crush them. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think, yeah, I just, I cannot, you don't have to, you don't have to run 10 Ks, right? <laughs> you don't have to do hours of hot yoga, really don't care, but you do have to incorporate your body into your healing. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out a way to do that. Um, yeah. so that's, that's what it's been for me. Didn't you, you teach yoga, right? I do teach yoga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my sister actually told me that you taught like trauma sensitive yoga oh yeah um so i haven't done it since the pandemic has happened but i hope to be doing it i I mean maybe i i should uh see if i can do one um on zoom but before the pandemic i would periodically do um a workshop at kali yuga yoga um Mm. about yoga and trauma basically and talking about how to uh begin to address physical and psychological trauma through the practice of yoga um, so yeah, I haven't done one since the pandemic, but. Okay. Do you have like a semi brief explanation on what trauma sensitive yoga is? Um, so it's not like, I wouldn't say that like the, the workshop that I've taught is how to do trauma sensitive yoga, but, um, yoga that is trauma sensitive, it should be, and is like anything that is trauma sensitive, um, in so far that it takes into account that the people participating possibly have experienced trauma. And so what does it look like to engage with those people? So like, for example, when I teach the trauma yoga workshop, um, I don't, I don't touch people, uh, without asking. And what I actually, I have like little cards, right. That say yes, adjustments, no adjustments. And I ask people like, not just like raise your hand if you don't want to be touched, right? Because we don't want to do like, oh, you just have to opt out of the touch. I want you to opt into what you want, right? Because a lot of trauma says you don't get to decide what you want. <laughs> oh, yeah. What you want is irrelevant. So I'm mm-hmm. going to have my trauma yoga workshop participants opt into what they want. Tell me, do you want adjustments or do you not want adjustments physically? Mm-hmm. Um, you know? and yeah. And so... That's part of it. Um, you know, I have pronoun cards. We do that sort of thing because we want to be um, sensitive to non-heterosexual sexualities and, like, um, gender identities. And so, yeah, that's it's all just thinking about, like, okay, if there's a group of people in the room, chances are someone has experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. So how do we go about this? in a way that is considerate of that and to sensitive of that. So, um, and I try to do, I mean, I'm, when I teach yoga outside the pandemic, I don't do a whole lot of adjustments anyway. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's all kinds of ways that you can, that you can incorporate that. And what my workshop is about really more so is, uh, even just from a personal practice standpoint, like how can you start utilizing the practice of yoga to address your own internal stuff that you've mm-hmm. got going on? Okay. That's really cool. Cause I feel like that's the main purpose. Like, like I like yoga. It makes me feel good, but I have had so many experiences doing yoga where that's actually what ends up happening is figuring out internal stuff. Cause it's really like, I'd love to hear more later and possibly even take your workshop because there's so much just, there's so much meditation type stuff that happens, which is, I'm assuming is like the I mean, uh, original intent for yoga, right? Yeah. Well, so the oldest yoga teachers taught that like the point of the asana, the physical postures and practice was to prepare the body in order for the mind to be able to more effectively meditate. Um, Mm. but even that's something that can be, that can be like addressed in a trauma informed way. Like for example, um, a lot of times we get traumatized when, um, we were still and what we really needed to do was not be still right? Mm-hmm. Like we got traumatized because we froze. Yeah. Even though what we really needed to do was fight or flight. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes encouraging people to be still in yoga postures can be counterproductive. If you're encouraging a bunch of traumatized people to like, just make sure you say super still, even if you don't want to, <laughs> that's not going to be helpful necessarily. No. Um, so it, it's, it's empowering people with understanding like, okay, it is actually safe to be still in this context. We can practice safely being still, 
but also like listen to your body if you need to move then move yeah um so it's both i think you have to, you have to go you have to go about these things in both ways right like sometimes we get traumatized because we were still when we needed to move so it's okay to move and other times you know we're all <laughs> probably most people uh, that are going to listen to this are going to be practicing yoga from a very Western standpoint. And in Western culture, we are frantic. We are frenetic. We are going at a breakneck pace (laughs) and we really need to slow down. Yeah. So it's both. You have to have both. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Okay, Emily, my last and final question for you is a bit of a change of pace. Uh, Are you ready? Okay, Emily, would you rather be forced to wear a really bright, like a bright yellow, sparkly, feathery jacket that looks pretty cool. It definitely make it's like definitely stands out. But would you rather be forced to wear that every day for the rest of your life? Like every single moment you wearing this like insane yellow jacket or have a like a preteen <laughs> elephant (laughs) as your assistant and he's not the best at his job he's not like bad at it but he like could be better and he makes really weird pun jokes all the time he's dependable but he like he kind of slacks off a bit here and there (laughs) which one would you rather oh man no, I'd go with the jacket because here's the thing. The jacket would become my signature piece. Ooh. It'd be like, here's Emily with the jacket. Also, um, I am becoming um, a quirky glasses lesbian. Um, this <gasps> is something that I decided recently. I just went on Zenny and I ordered a pair of glow-in-the-dark purple glasses. Oh, my gosh. Um, so I just feel like I could really rock like a bright, like a bright green nonsense jacket you know like it would just it would just become my signature piece um and people would get used to it (laughs) okay i love it i love we'd always know where you were and i i respect that to the max emily thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for being open to talking tonight and being interviewed and sharing your story with all of us it really was an honor Thank you very much. Um, if anybody would like to find me, I never remember this part, but I'm remembering it now. Um, yes. I'm Emily Joy Poetry uh, on all the things on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, um, and my book Church Two: How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing is going to be um, coming out in March with Broadleaf Books, but it's available for pre-order now. So if Ooh. you like the things that I have to say, pre-orders are a great way to support. Okay, awesome. And can people pre-order that anywhere? Like if they just search? Um, it's on Amazon. Two. It's on Broadleaf. Uh, it's on Indie Books. It's on um, Barnes & Noble. It's in all the places. So Okay, amazing, amazing. I will put all of those links in the description box below for those listening that are and should be super interested because I am. Um, Emily, you are awesome. I hope that I see you randomly at the grocery store in really cool masks or something. <laughs> Probably will we be re- soon. <laughs> yes, yes. I love it. But thank you again, and I hope you have the best night with Caitlin and your puppy, Harley. All right, thank you. 